Welcome to the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm your host, David Scubin. This is a podcast for all Catholics and people of goodwill who strive to live in the world, but not be of the world. First and foremost, we need to be disciples of Jesus ourselves. And then we go forth and make disciples of all nations, just as our Lord commanded. Through a series of timely topics and great guests, we will take that long and narrow journey to heaven together, encouraging each other in faith and virtue along the way. So let's get started. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. Uh, so blessed to have this gentleman join us. He's back in North America. I call it on a on a barnstorming tour. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> so we're happy to have him make a virtual stop here in Wild Rose Country. Uh, commentator, podcaster, historian, author. He's all of those and uh, most importantly, our brother in Christ, Mr. Charles Coulomb. Welcome back to the Catholic Canuck Podcast. Great to be back. Great to be here in the wilds of Alberta. Outstanding, so good. One of these days, it'll have to be a, it'll have to be a physical stop here, not a virtual one, Charles. But uh, the ways of the world don't allow that quite yet. But uh, uh, tell us first, uh, you're back in the U.S. here for a little bit. Maybe tell us why, uh, what brought you back first and foremost. And then I also wanted to ask you about your health. I heard that you you'd run into um, a little bout with this crazy coronavirus and uh, had some other health issues. But uh, how how are you making out right now? And are you feeling a little bit better? Oh, I'm feeling fine. I'm in uh, I'm in uh, Southern California for the month of July, uh, and then on the first of August, I uh, take off for my uh, native city of New York, and uh, whence we moved when I was a little boy. And uh, on the second of August, I'll be giving a talk at uh, Most Holy Redeemer Church in Lower Manhattan. After they begin to be doing solemn vespers, and then uh, at six thirty p.m. And then I'll uh, give you a talk on Blessed Emperor Charles and signing the book and so on. And then um, the following day, I've got uh, dinner at, in Annandale, New Jersey, out near the wilds of the Paramus Mall, uh, fame, famed in song and story. Uh, on the, uh, I'll be going down to Washington on the 4th. I've got things in D.C. on the 5th and 6th, the 7th. Uh, I'm going to go up to Frederick, Maryland to see friends. And then the 8th, I'll be at St. Titus's Church after the noon mass in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Uh, let's see, that's the 8th. 10th, I'll be in Philly. Uh, the 12th, I believe, the night of the 12th, there'll be a, a dinner at uh, Fogarty's in, uh, the, uh, in Westchester County in Bronxville. You want to get in touch with the Westchester County Chesterton Society for that. The Westchestertons, as they call themselves. And then uh, the 14th and 15th, I'll be uh, in New England on uh, personal family stuff. And then back to to Manhattan on the 15th. And then uh, I'll fly back to Austria on the 16th. Um, And that, the... um, then I'll be back in Austria until, well, I hope I can return for Christmas, but that's up to Auntie COVID. And speaking of Auntie COVID, uh, as you mentioned, I, I had a bout of it uh, in May. Unfortunately, the professor from when I received it, 87 years old, she died. 
uh, but I had a very, very light case. I had three days, two, two weeks of quarantine, of which for three days I had a light fever, 99 degrees tops, and backache. I didn't lose the sense of taste or smell. I didn't have any trouble breathing. I wasn't coughing. It was very, very, very minor. But, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not grateful for Dr. Kiergaard's death by any stretch. But I have my certificate for the lower Austrian state government. I am a COVID victim. I can travel. I can do anything I want. If you don't like it, stuff it. Uh, You're a survivor, Charles. I'm sorry? Is that, is that what they're doing? You're a survivor, I guess. Now they're calling you. Eh? Is that I am a COVID survivor. And I oh, and I tell you what, I, I claim all the rights and privileges there, too. I had a, uh, a funny experience uh, after I got out of, a day or two after I got out of quarantine. Uh, I went with a friend of a, a park called Laxenburg near the town of Trumal. Beautiful place. But there was a sort of ranger slash guard at the gate demanding to know if I was vaccinated. Well, I whipped out that paper and I said, Ich bin ein Covid victim. And I shoved the thing in his face and I said, Lesen Sie das, mein Herr. And he, was, and he went from being this officious official to a, oh, 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 genau, mein Herr, genau. I said, yeah, yeah, genau, mein Herr. Er muss gehen. And he got out of my way. The more, the more officious the questioner, the crazier I get. The more polite and courteous than the saner I am. I, I, I'm entirely a reactionary in that area. If you if you give me guff, I give you crazy. You give me courtesy, I give you sane. It's it's all dependent on you, your choices, your judgment. I dictate. It sounds like the wit and wisdom of my uh, my late uncle Ben got rest his soul. He said, "When you're talking to a scalper at a pro sports event, never ever speak English." And uh, <laughs> so I've always taken that as. Uh, you know, some good uh, words and bits of wisdom from him. So that's a, that's a great story, Charles. That's uh, that's outstanding. I don't know what's worse. I mean, that I think it's the, the, the worst thing now in the world, I think, is anybody that's got COVID, like I believe I had COVID a long time ago, kind of at the beginning of this, but it's not documented. I talked to the doctor, said, yeah, you probably had COVID-19. Not documented though, sorry. Like, And it's like, oh, great. Well, that doesn't do me any good, right? I'm Never going to get it again, probably at least not that uh, the original strain of it thing. But uh, boy, it's, it's just the craziness. But I'm glad you're you're back up and running late. So this is a, a, an amazing tour that you're on here. You got a lot to, to tackle, and hopefully, hopefully things kind of open up here a little bit so that uh, you can get back to North America on a little more frequent basis. And um, cool. from our last conversation, Charles, if you remember, you did agree to be on our Knights of Columbus hockey team up here in Canada as at least a backup goalie. So we definitely need you to, to at least uh, come up and suit up for that one of these days. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And let's see, are you fourth degree? Yes, I am. Yes, sir. I'm glad to hear that because after we finish, I have to speak to you. I'm fourth degree too. And I have to ask you, I want to compare notes on the way the fourth degree ceremony is done in Canada because it can't be done the way we do it in the States. Yeah, let's definitely compare notes. Things have changed a lot in the fourth degree, as you know, and I think we might have even mentioned that last time we chatted. Uh, I, when I did my fourth degree, it was, I believe, probably about six years ago, and it yeah. was still when when the the standard tuxedo and the um, the 
the regular guard uniform with the the sword and all that was still applicable but as we know things have uh, have changed a little bit on that front so uh, i'll say so let's compare notes for sure yeah they they can't you know it's a funny thing they got rid of uh the uniform just after i went into fourth degree and i had been contemplating going into the color guard but see all right look i venerate the royal canadian legion but i'm not actually a member i have never served in her majesty's canadian armed forces I wasn't in Korea. I wasn't in World War II. I know I look old enough, but it's not true. I, I, I am not entitled to be a member of the Royal Canadian Legion. So I would feel funny wearing a Royal Canadian Legion uniform. And I just would. I mean, it's what we call stolen valor in the South. Though we don't, we don't uh, add a U there. It's just, you know, D-A-L-O-R. But um, we're feeling impeded you know absolutely yeah i'm not a not a big fan of the uniform change either myself but uh yeah always never a dull moment in in the church for sure never a dull moment with the knights of columbus sometimes too but uh let's get into this charles Uh, again i'm so happy that you joined us i kind of look at it as uh charles colomb coming to rally the troops in canada because we need a little bit of rallying here nowadays uh let's let's go to the place where you know a lot of Catholics are trying to avoid, but we cannot avoid this anymore. This is a, a call, I think, for us to to step forward and present the truth the way it's supposed to be. So let's talk about residential schools really quick. What really happened there, Charles? There's a fiercely anti-Catholic narrative in Canada towards Catholics and the church, uh, even from around the world on this. Um, doesn't matter what you say, what truths you present. It just doesn't seem to, uh, it's, it's just falling on deaf ears. So um, what what is the truth of residential schools, Charles, and the Catholic Church's role in it? First and foremost, the truth is 46 burned churches in Canada so far. Now, and I put it to you this way. If that's okay because of any past injustices, is it okay for me to burn your place because of what you did to my people? Eh? Is it okay? for me to set government buildings afire because my ancestors were defeated at the Plains of Abraham. I don't think so. And if you think, if you think that that's okay, no matter what happened in the past, if you think it's okay for people to be doing that now, set your own house on fire. Because I guarantee you, you are a beneficiary of past injustices. I don't care what your ethnicity or your religion or your race, you are benefiting from past injustices. So burn your own house down before you encourage others to burn others down. And if you want to, if you want to stay in your house while it's burning, that's good. That's good too. You know, I, you've got my okay on that. If you're that stupid, have at it. Now, <clears throat> having said that, um, the truth of the matter is is that the residential schools were a government scheme. And so often is the case in the English-speaking world, when the government makes a deal with the church to run something, it's always to do it on the cheap. The government don't want to spend the money, and they're not going to support the church in doing it, but they'll ask them to do it. The church would do it back in the days when we believed in the salvation of souls for that very purpose. There was a high mortality rate amongst children in general. What do you, I mean, think of the coffin ships. You know, people died 
at rates we would find catastrophic today. Uh, the other thing you've got to bear in mind as far as the unmarked graves go, what do you think their first their first markings markers were? They were wood. Who's going to pay the pay? Who's going to give the church money for uh, stone uh, for stone markers? They won't pay the church to support the bloody kids. Why would they pay the church? For, uh, why would they give them the money for stone markers? The truth of the matter is that the residential schools uh, were what appeared to be the best thing they could do at the time. Uh, if the if the church had refused to do the deal, what would have happened then? The kids would have gotten nothing. Zip. And believe you me, the look at the infant mortality rate on the Indian reserves. On the on the kids who stayed behind, huh? And believe me, you won't find any markers for them either. Not even one once. Uh, but again, bear in mind. We are speaking from a culture that sees nothing wrong with murdering infants before they're born, All right? The residential schools tried to do the best they could with you, they could with the kids, rather than murdering them in the womb, which we would do, which we do. Now, I'm a believer that Adolf Hitler was not the best judge of morals. That's just the way I feel. I feel the same way about Stalin and Mao. Why? Because when your hands are dripping with blood, you're probably not the best person to judge. Well, I can tell you that our hands are dripping with blood. And we don't have a problem with that. So maybe before we judge the residential schools, we should stop killing our own children. And, uh, and by the way, at least the residential school kids got graves. Their bodies weren't used for industrial purposes. Like we do. Maybe that is what we're really upset about, that there was no profit made out of the bodies. That's maybe the underlying problem we have with the residential schools. All that flesh going to waste when it could have been used for uh, economic purposes. Again, I hate to get emotional about it, but I mean... It's like hearing the Nazis say, isn't that terrible? Pull the bloody plank out of your own eye first. Then maybe you can talk. So, Charles, if I'm, you really, I'm, if I'm you really, want to talk. I'm really, I'm really glad you, you, you said it just the way you did it. I think that was, that's just, and that's uh, exactly what needed to be said. I don't well, know if you saw the, the, uh, the, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you saw the uh, correspondence from our, our uh, Justin, Justine Trudeau. Um, yeah, when he had uh, a conservative uh, member of the conservative party was putting forward a a bill of some sort. I was just going to bring it up for you here if I can find it. But um, there was a, uh, a bill that basically, I guess the method behind it was that there'd be no sex selective abortions in Canada. As we know that there's certain cultures that, especially young girls, uh, they find out uh, in uh, uh, that the, uh, the baby is going to be a, a girl that they will abort this, uh, this baby before, you know, just based on its, on its, uh, gender, on its, on its sex. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the liberal party and the new Democrats, uh, as well as some other parties, uh, I don't, you know, I, I think even some conservative MPs voted against it. 
this was all during the times when this the whole residential school these this grave discoveries was coming out and Justin Trudeau went out of his way to go on Twitter and to say to basically shame that conservative MP for even bringing up the subject as, as being aggressive uh, towards women's rights and I said to myself where are we at as a country and a society that this can can go on our prime minister can come in virtue signal so aggressively like this so egregiously and um and still be calling out the catholic church for for things that happened during the residential schools and and i mean it just it just boggles my mind Charles. so i just wanted to bring i don't know if you heard about that or not but no i i was aware i was aware and the fact is the hypocrisy is so thick it can cut you with a knife and does but i'd make two other points one is since it was the government that set up the residential schemes if you want to go burning something try burning government offices and see what you get for your money the mounties will be after you then and the second thing is that the indians themselves the first nations as the as the polite like to say they're very much against this so once again it is white neo-colonialism like president obama going to kenya and telling them about their gay laws. Now, you see, you can't have it both ways. Either you do know, you have your own enlightenment, and you're going to instruct the heathen, even at the point of cutting off aid and letting them starve, the way our Mr. Obama would do, or you're not. But see, you can't lie out of both of your mouths. Well, you can, and people do, but let's just say you can't pretend to be a non-hypocrite. The second, uh, uh, well, that was both points, the, the First Nations and the, and the government. And I, I tell you, I would recommend highly to every, every parish in Canada, defend yourselves because the state won't do it. And if, if you're foolhardy enough to want to burn or vandalize the church and you find yourself beaten up, whose fault was that? If you want to commit a crime and something bad happens to you, you can't complain. If I go into somebody's house late at night to steal something and I end up with a leg full of buckshot, whose fault was that? Now, I realize that in today's society, I could probably sue the homeowner, at least down here. So he, uh, he might be better off shooting me in the head, but still... <laughs> That, uh, no, I mean, uh, the sheer insanity and madness of the people in charge, it doesn't bode well for the future. Mm -hmm. Because you see, that kind of a setup can't last. It really can't. When those in charge are basically willing to shoot themselves in the foot in pursuit of an insane ideology. Well, I mean, again, it's like the Nazis on the Eastern Front. Their racial policies were more important to them than defeating the Soviets. I mean, that is the way that leadership becomes crazy. Um, look at our, our so-called uh, French-Canadian nationalists, who in the 60s pushed uh, abortion and birth control. Let me explain something. When you're a minority people who only survived over a couple of centuries because of your birthright, and your leadership a range of your birth rate to drop to less than replacement. That, that's madness. That's sheer madness. That's begging for death. 
Um, and, and, and what what gets me too, then I'll get specifically Canadian here. Uh, you look at uh, going to Eastern Canada now. You look at the success of bishops of Quebec and uh, people like Bourget and so forth. You look at the founder of Anglo, of English language Catholicism in Eastern Canada, Bishop Alexander Macdonald, who was a Scots Canadian, came over from Scotland, was the first bishop of Kingston, Ontario, and really the father, as I say, of English speaking Catholicism in Canada in a lot of ways. And then you look at Renamy, <laughs> the Anglican Bishop Strawn, who was the uh, the founder and the, the chaplain of the family compact, as they would say. Uh, all three of them together would look at us today in utter horror at what we are and what we've become. And the same, the same you know, the, the, uh, the attacks on Sir John A. MacDonald, you know, he and his opponents together, the Grits and the Tories of that time, would look at us now as worthless scum. And they'd be right. I mean, all the party divisions of the past melt into insignificance compared to the distinction between us and them. And not just Canada, but around the globe. The people who gave us what we have we reject our inheritance. We uh, we attack their good name, and we think we deserve something for that. Well, we do, all right. We deserve something, and I fear we may get it. But you you cannot attack the sources of your of your income, as it were, of your cultural and historical wealth, and think you're going to keep it. You won't. Our mutual friend Kennedy Hall. I talked to you about him. I know you've yeah. been on his uh, his program before, and we had a really interesting chat here uh, recently on one of our podcasts. And uh, back to just the the uh, relationship with the Catholic Church with the 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 Native people, the First Nations people in Canada. For over thirty years, the Oblates. Uh, over thirty years ago, there was a, an apology that they had issued. Um, what a lot of people, I think, are forgetting in our world is that the Church has been reconciling and and it being in these first nations communities that's why you see a lot of these churches that are burning they're catholic churches because the catholic church has been journeying this whole time with the native people where other denominations have been long gone mm -hmm. um there's a a large you've probably heard of it there's a there's a large uh pilgrimage in alberta called the lac saint anne pilgrimage just outside of edmonton sometimes yeah. it garners fifty thousand. Uh, native people, mostly from Alberta and Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, but from all across Canada. They come every year. It's not a camping trip. It's not a trip to the lake to to just hang out and, and uh, enjoy the beach. This is a pilgrimage. They come by horseback. They they make There's great personal expense for them to come and to worship together, to have mass, to pray the rosary. I've seen it with my own eyes. This is legitimate. This is genuine love for Catholicism and for for our Lord. Can there ever be any reconciliation, not with the native people and uh, in the Catholic Church? Because I think we're already on that road to reconciliation. Because you need—it's a two-way street, right? And there's so many of our, uh, so many native uh, Canadians that are that are Catholics right now. 
But what about the ones, what about the Marxists, the, 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 the face of uh, Marxism and secularism, socialism that have nothing to do with the First Nations people? Can there ever be reconciliation without the cross between Catholics and Marxists? Because, Charles, those, those native uh, Canadian people, they belong to our family. Yeah, and, and they and are. And it's an attack against all of us, is it not? It, it certainly is. It certainly is. As I, as I, I said during the, uh, the pre-show, <laughs> we, uh, we are definitely, we are one people. Baptismal water is thick in the blood. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the uh, Lakota Sioux, uh, former medicine man, Blackout, is a, a candidate for canonization now. And he became famous among secular people for a book called Black Elk Speaks, in which a group of anthropologists quizzed him about what he had believed when he was pagan. But the thing is, he became a catechist. He became very devout. And when this uh, thing was, was published, he wrote a sort of rebuttal called uh, Black Elk Speaks Again, in which he affirmed the truth of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith as the means of salvation which is why he had become one. The, the other thing that I found was interesting, he had been part of the Wild West show and had gone to London. And as he put it, I danced before our grandmother, Queen Victoria. That was the way he put it. Our grandmother, Queen Victoria, whose statue was attacked in Winnipeg, by the way. I can imagine what Black Elk would have done when he was a young brave to them. But... Uh, you look at Louis Riel, you know, who uh, was a bit crazy from time to time, but he too was a uh, uh, devout Catholic and, uh, for that matter, a devout subject of Queen Victoria. It's We remember his risings against the government in Ottawa for injustices. We forget he's defending Canada against the Fenians in the name of the Queen. You forget that, you say. You don't get everything. You only get part of it. And the part you do get is a bit muffed. So history is always messy and filled with injustices, out of which, as I said earlier, we all benefit. But the fact remains that the unitive element is what we have to concentrate on. Those Indian churches that are being burned, like the urban ethnic churches that are being attacked, have to be defended. These people have no right to burn or destroy anything except what's their own. As I say, if they want to set their own houses on fire and stay in them, that's okay. I, I don't want to get in the way of their freedom of self-destruction. I wouldn't encourage it because I'm against suicide. But on the other hand, as they would say about abortion, I may be personally opposed. <laughs> no, that's not it. I, I tell you, if, if I saw one of them trying to commit suicide, I would try to prevent it. You know, I, I, I would go so far as to infringe on his rights of self self uh, annihilation. But seriously, only goes so far, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't. All, all joking aside, you don't want to yeah. see anybody go to hell. No. But in truth, there could be no middle ground between ourselves and the Marxists because we don't speak the same language and we don't have the same world. They see the world and humanity 
itself as something that can be molded any way they want to, as something they have power to control. We see it as something that is as it is, that can be purified, that can be redeemed, but cannot, other than that, really be changed. I mean, the the very first uh, French Jesuit missionaries composed Christmas songs and creeds and prayers in Huron and Algonquin. And that was always the way of the church in dealing with the uh, the native peoples of the continent. I mean, I have Huron and Algonquin blood myself. Uh, you can't see it in me, but you can see it in my cool cousins. Um, it's just the way it is. And I resent a bunch of Marxist Anglos doing this very much. Of course, I, I have to admit, I resent Marxist uh, francophones even more. Corrupts to Optima Pessima. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, Charles. Absolutely. Um, on that note, too, uh, we did we did a podcast recently about the the uh, the life of Venerable Bishop Vital Justin Grandin, um, canceled by this crazy cancel culture that is. Uh, that uh, I mean, this is this is the the Marxist movement of our age, uh, which is uh, it's it's pretty pretty scary to me. Uh, what I wanted to to ask you about is, um, and I, I I tie it back to that ridiculous Amazonian synod from a year and a half two years ago. Uh, I'm sure we could probably do a separate podcast just on that alone, Charles. But let's skim this. Do you do you remember <laughs> there was a there was a fella from uh, from Germany, I believe. Um, that uh, that was in the Amazon, was there for fifty years. They asked him, uh, you know, what, what what was your experiences like there, and how many how many people did you bring into the church? And he said, oh, I've been there for fifty years. I've been accompanying people, and I have baptized nobody. And then I look, and you know, not that it was a celebrated comment. I mean, you know, I mean, serious Catholics were panning this guy, and and I mean, we should be praying for him because I I just don't want to be in his shoes at his last judgment. Come in that empty handed to our Lord. Bishop Grandin, uh, 25,000 miles by snowshoes, uh, baptized probably thousands, maybe more. Um, Lived a a virtuous life, a heroic life, one that the church even said in 1966 was worthy of becoming a saint eventually, or is on the the path to to becoming a saint. Charles, what a lot of people forget is when the church declares someone even. Uh, blessed to be a, a venerable, they are declaring that he is in heaven, mm-hmm. the place that we're all aspiring to. Yet uh, we we kind of let, and we're not kind of, we let this um, this Marxist movement trample on one of our own, the the man that planted the seeds of Catholicism in the prairies, way too easily, way too willingly. Um, oh, do you have some thoughts on that? I do. There's a simple answer. At the end of the day. The reason why the church is so supine in the face of stupidity and horror and insanity is because a great chunk of our leadership and as a result of our of our uh, people do not believe in the church as the means of salvation and on a certain level don't believe in salvation as it was always considered at all. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, as Benedict XVI said in 2016, the vast majority of Catholics today are functional universalists. Everybody goes to heaven, basically, unless they're really, really bad. 
whatever that means. And bad is something we can't really define because, of course, being a murderer or an adulterer isn't a sin anymore. So it's hard to define. I mean, those not being sins, you know, what, what, how could you lose heaven under those circumstances? Your uh, salvation is complete. It's not begun by baptism. It's completed by your birth for people of this mindset. Once you've said that, you've got several problems all, all at once. One is that since up until sometime in the for, between the 40s and the 80s, uh, the church was about salvation, and everything it did was about that. Uh, everything it did becomes wrong. That's one problem. The second problem is that the church no longer has a reason to exist. So what happens? Well, the, the professionals, the clergy, etc., to say nothing of Susan from the parish council, they've got to redesign their reason for being. So some of them become museum curators, in a sense. Some of them become corporate executives, feeding the machine to keep it going, uh, manage decline and all that stuff. Uh, some of them become social justice warriors. They've got to come up with a reason to exist. They can't just say the awful truth. We exist and should get real jobs somewhere. They can't say that. Uh, Pope Benedict pointed out two terrible truths, which is that with this mindset, this universalism, uh, one, there's no reason to evangelize. But two, that being the case, there's no reason to be Catholic yourself. So with a hierarchy and a population more or less penetrated by these ideas, it is impossible to defend the heroes of the past, since in fact, we share the mindset of their detractors. How can we defend them? We believe that everyone has a right to be whatever they are and will go to heaven dying that way. We don't see that there's a problem with uh, subsidizing Elton John's rocket man. We have no issue with that. We do have an issue with the traditional faith of the Catholic Church, which is not merely wrong, but a reproach to us. It means we've rejected his great commission. It means we say that he lied when he said, uh, unless a man is born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He lied when he said, unleash you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall not have life in it. Now, if we say that Christ lied, and Grandin was nothing, if not a servant of Jesus Christ. So, that's where we are. If we reject the servant, we reject the master. But having rejected the master, we should reject the servant. And that's the terrible truth we don't want to look at, we don't want to accept. Um, but it remains true whether we like it or not. The the Canadian flag itself. Uh, I've heard that you've had some you have some interesting insights on this, and I think I know as I am journeying this in this podcast, I just tell our listeners this is a journey for me, and I love journeying with other people too. But it's uh, opening my eyes to a lot of these little metanoia moments as I learn things about history in our church, especially in Canada. Canada was given maybe the most of any country that ever started uh, and, and has thrown the most away. 
I do want to ask the question because I think it ties into what we've been talking about. If the church was so um, influential at one time in our country, when did things start going south? And I, I wanted to chat with you about the flag because I, I didn't know, you know, okay, we got the maple leaf. I mean, that's what I've grown up with. Be proud in the maple leaf flag. But we had a flag before that too that a lot of people forget because they're just, that's history. It's just starting to, to kind of fade into the background. Can you tell us a little bit about, is there is there a connection with maybe the um, with the church and with Canada just, you know, kind of slowly but surely starting to kind of fall apart at its foundation with that flag change? Well, yeah. I mean, remember I said earlier that the Anglo-Canadians had had their own version of the Quiet Revolution and the flag change was part of that. Now, let me let me point out one thing first and foremost uh, to my knowledge there are no protestants in my uh in my background uh and i am hardly what you would call i've got english blood but i'm hardly what you would call an englishman but on the other hand i am a believer in providence um no one is sorrier than i am that my father's lost the plains of abraham the, I don't think there's a French Canadian born who doesn't have the shadow of the conquest hanging over him. But that having been said, God often speaks to us through history, through the way things go. Uh, because of the conquest, we were spared the horrors of the revolution. It used to be said uh, by snide French Canadians when dealing with uh, Metropolitain from France that uh, we were the Frenchmen who didn't kill our king. And the fact also remains that the Quebec Act was the thing that gave my fathers their freedom. That's why I'm a Catholic now. And once upon a time, this was something that French Canadians were very much aware of. That's why they didn't join the rebellion in 1776. And it is why they... Uh, that's why they beat the uh, enemies of the king at Chateau Guy in the War of 1812. Um, the uh, relationship between the Anglo and the French Canadian has always been very thorny, not unlike that between the Irish and the English in Britain. But unlike that in Britain, the crown in Canada was not the enemy of the faith. It wasn't always the friend of the French, but it wasn't the enemy of the faith. And whether we like it or not, Canada was a sort of de facto agreement between the French Canadian loyalists. Uh, their alliance was basically to keep either of them from becoming Americans. That is the reality. Whether you like it or not, you can whine about it, you can jump up and down. And uh, many of my uh, brethren by blood would say, well, that's the myth of the two nations. But it's not a myth. It's a, it's a simple reality. Uh, if you look at what became of us in New England, we become completely assimilated. And that's what would have happened had we become part of the United States. Uh, look at Louisiana, which is still really one of my very favorite parts of the States. And it's, it's a great place. But the French count for nothing in Louisiana compared to what they can, or and certainly less in New England, compared to what we do in Canada. 
And that's the difference. So, um, and yes, I am leading up to the Red Ensign. Now, of course, in the 19th century, the, uh, uh, the French Canadians developed what became sort of our unofficial national flag, uh, the Drapeau de Carillon Sacré-Cœur, which looked like the current flag of Quebec with the Sacred Heart at the center, a flag which uh, I revere. But in terms of the, uh, the political flag of the Dominion, well, there was a custom in, uh, in the British Empire to use very different versions of what was called the Red Ensign, which was the civil flag, uh, generally differenced with the coat of arms. In Canada, after World War One, before World War One, the Union Jack was the national flag. That was it. After World War One, the Red Ensign became officially the national flag of, uh, of Canada. The first version had a very unwieldy coat of arms, to say the least, that had all the provinces in it. You can see it online. It, it, it's, it didn't last long, a very complex thing. But then they settled on a, um, a very beautiful flag, which was the Red Ensign with the Canadian arms, uh, the simple Canadian arms, which basically shows the, the coats of arms of Royal France, England, Scotland, and Ireland, being the four foundational European peoples of, uh, of Canada, and under them, the maple leaf, incidentally. Because you know, except in autumn, you don't see too many red maple leaves flying around. You see green ones. And that, that red ensign was the flag through uh, World War II. It was the flag under which they died at Dieppe in Normandy. And it was the flag until 57, when they changed the color of the uh, maple leaves to red. In 64, Lester Pearson, the famous Soviet spy, uh, I'm sorry, I, it's my Tourette's, you'll have to excuse me. I, I didn't mean he was a Soviet spy, I meant he was in the Soviet pay. Uh, no, uh, wait, no, no, I can do this, hold on, hold on, I, I can say this. Uh, the, uh, 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 yeah, anyway, Lester Pearson, uh, I doubt the, I don't think he took Soviet pay for this. But anyway, anyway, apart from amalgamating the uh, Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the Canadian Army into the Canadian forces, the restoration, which, by the way, was one thing I've always been very grateful to Harper for, interesting enough. Um, he came up with the idea of a flag that would not reflect Canada's heritage at all. Now that flag was interesting. The Union Jack itself is interesting. The flag of England is the cross of St. George, the, the red cross on the white field. The flag of Scotland is the cross of St. Andrew, the patron of Scotland. It's the white X on the blue field. Now, when the Act of Union took place in 1707, the cross of St. George was superimposed on the cross of St. Andrew, and presto changeo, without, without the, the red X, just the white X, there you have the first Union Jack. And to this day, it is the badge of the United Empire Loyalists, the UEL. Uh, in 1801, the Kingdom of Ireland's parliament was united with, the, uh, with that of Great Britain, and it became the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Well, they have a problem. How do you reflect Ireland? 
in that flag. So they more or less, to some slight degree, kind of sort of invented the cross of St. Patrick. And that was kind of funny in a sense because Patrick wasn't a martyr, but never mind. Uh, that red X on the white field, the cross of St. Patrick, was added. So the Union Jack represents three saints, George, Andrew, and Patrick. Now then, you look at the arms of, uh, the arms of uh, England, Scotland, Ireland, and France. Well, the, uh, in, the, in the coat of arms, the, uh, the three leopards of England, like the three lilies of France, represent the Trinity. O Canada uh, was kind of gutted of its meaning. You may not be familiar with the original words of O Canada, but uh, they uh, in the original in the original French version, uh, which oddly enough I'm very fond of, uh, the last verse. Um, the very last verse, I call it the, the forbidden verse. Sacred love of the throne and altar, fill our hearts with your immortal breath. Among the foreign races, that's you guys, just so you'll know, our guide is the law. Let us know how to be a people of brothers under the yoke of faith and repeat like our fathers the, uh, the conqueror cry, the battle cry. For Christ and the King. For Christ and the King. That was where the French-Canadian mind was in the mid-19th century. And similarly, your, your Anglo-Canadian anthem was unofficial, was the Maple Leaf Forever, which in its uh, revised version ended, uh, the lily, shamrock, rose, and twine, the Maple Leaf Forever. Both, in their way, beautiful testaments to the history and ideals of those two founding peoples, the French and Anglo-Canadians. The new version of World Canada was pretty much purged of all that. Uh, the Maple Leaf Forever was kind of forgotten, and the Maple Leaf Flag, which represents none of the peoples of Canada, but simply a, a synthetic nationalism, that was in place. Because you see, the truth of the matter is Canada is Canada because of the British, the French, the Crown, and the Indians, and the two churches, Catholic and Anglican. Uh, that's, that's it. I mean, you've had the, the immigrant peoples who certainly built a lot, and thank God for them. But that was the foundation. And to try to ignore it, pretend it isn't there, was basically, it was the beginning of now of seeing statues of uh, Sir John pulled down of Queen Victoria. And it is wrong. It is simply wrong. Um, similarly, you know, the, the French Canadian historiographers refer to the time of uh, Maurice Duplessis as uh, Le Grand Noisseur, the great darkness. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was only darkness if you yourself were not someone of light. You know, to the cockroach, light is darkness. They can't see in the light. So 
I, I think back, you know, the, the, the last breath of the old Canada, a time when, uh, when uh, Duplessis was running Quebec and Diefenbaker was running the Dominion. Far from perfect, and Lord knows the two of them had their problems with each other. But as I said, with all the characters that went before, you could rouse Stephen Baker and, uh, and uh, Duplessis from their graves, and they could see what their successes are like now. They'd join hands against them. And that, I, I, I mean, basically what we're in now is what our father would have considered simple decency against utter disgust. And I'm old enough, you see, to remember. I'm old enough to remember when the vast majority of Canadians and Americans alike believed that abortion was murder. And if the me, who was 11 years old, could be magically transformed to now, I can imagine what I would have thought. I'll tell you a secret. It's because I still think it. Where where are we going now with the church? I, I look in the United States and I see that there's um you know this um this movement towards which is I mean it's encouraging. I don't know what's ever going to become of it, but the U.S. bishops saying if you are openly supporting uh, abortion um, and you're a politician, you you profess yourself to be a Catholic. There's going to be a question of of what are the guidelines over receiving the Eucharist? Well, it should be obvious, you would think, um, but uh, but I guess we're going to call some meetings and some consultants together and figure it out for sure, I guess. I, I don't know. But you know what my point is, Charles, at least there's a little bit of movement on that end of the United States. In Canada, that's a conversation that that just simply doesn't happen. Um, and now, I, and I do want to just get your thoughts too briefly on on Pope Francis and this um, this letter that he sent out and I'm, as, a, as a Canadian Catholic. Now, and what yeah. most people know already about me, I do, I, I guess I, the best way to put it is I'm a traditionally minded Catholic that goes to a Novus Ordo parish. Uh, I do occasionally go to the Anglican Ordinariate uh, and I, I quite enjoy that. I've never been to a traditional Latin mass even once in my life, although I would like to go and I, I, I certainly, uh, I, I love, I love the, yeah. the idea of Latin being the universal language of the church and anywhere you go in the world, you can pray in Latin. I think that's, that was a great concept. Maybe we should have, should have stuck with it. I guess the, the message to Catholics in Canada, because even though I don't go to a traditional Latin mass, um, I found the, the letter um, a little discouraging. Um, and then I don't, uh, and you know, with this whole residential school thing, it's a tough time to be a Catholic in Canada. Um, you know, we're, we, we kind of feel like we're fighting a lot of forces externally. And then sometimes even internally, we feel like we've got some opposition against us as we try to grow in our faith and our love for the Lord and our love for evangelizing the nation. Well, without a doubt, Mr. struggle as do we all. Well, just a few quick points. Firstly, two things to bear in mind. I, I mean, on the face of it, even if, as you've noticed, the, uh, the Pope's letter is simply brutal. And it gives the lie to everything he ever said about accompanying and, and uh, compassion and love. It's, it's, none of it's true. It was eyewash. And uh, he blew it right out. The question, of course, is why? The other question is what real meaning this letter has. These are two different things. As far as the letter itself goes, here's the thing. 
the uh, papal bull that established the form of the uh, the mass in the manner that we know it, the Trinitine mass. A few things have to be borne in mind about it. One is the Pope St. Pius V uh, codified the mass at a time when over the prior 200 years there had been limitless uh, variations. This, this was part of the general abuse and breakdown of papal authority and church authority during the great schism and things like that, which is why in the text of Quo Primum, he, any form of the mass that was 200 years or older is specifically exempted. Because as far as St. Pius V was concerned, the rot had been going on for two centuries. So the Dominican rite, the Sarum rite, the rite of Braga, the Mozarabic rite, all that stuff, that's fine. It's 200 years or more. It's, it's been in existence, not a problem. But those areas that had developed all kinds of weird things since then, they're going to go by this. Now, the bowl, if you read it, on the face of it, it appears to establish the Tridentine Mass in perpetuity. There have been all sorts of arguments over whether or not it could be abrogated. Whether or not it could be, it hasn't been. And that's important to bear in mind. In 1969, Paul VI uh, brings in the new mass with the bull Missale Romanum, which, however, does not attempt to abrogate Primum. In some of the vernacular translations, there's language, a, a paragraph, that appeared to try to do so, but it's not in the Latin or in the French, for that matter. And so uh, it was of no, no legal effect. In 1974, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith put out an unsigned note purporting to ban the uh, traditional mass. But there is a very important concept I want to introduce you to now. Understanding the church is really important. Two words, ultra vires. It means beyond your capacity, beyond your strength. You can't do that. You don't have the right to do that. So uh, the unsigned note on the face of it was ultra vires. But John Paul II becomes Pope. He appoints a commission of cardinals to look in to the legal status of the Tridentine Mass. They report back, it is, quote, premium has never been abrogated, the Mass is not illegal. Now, this presents a problem because using that 74 document, hundreds if not thousands of clerical careers across the globe were destroyed uh, the faithful attached to the traditional mass were called schismatic, abused in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, you think of the sexual and financial abuse, this topped them all because it was universal. And unlike those others, which were the individual efforts, shall we say, of malefactors, this was tolerated at the very highest levels of the church and was a universal thing. This presented both John Paul II and Benedict XVI with a terrible problem. A huge injustice has been done. How to go about rectifying it without losing the faith of, of millions of people? Part of the problem you've got with a lot of Catholics is their faith rested not in their faith, of which they were sometimes very ignorant, but in the probity of the hierarchy. And this is why when that was obviously not so, so many people questioned or even lost the faith. But I digress. So what does this current letter do? That fig leaf 
that Benedict put over the whole affair, uh, Francis has seen fit to rip off. But it doesn't actually change the legal standing of the Tridentine Mass one iota. All it does is reveal once again the horror that was that was visited upon the Catholic people, and makes the Pope clearly a collaborator in that horror. Now, that brings us to the Pope himself. Why would he do this? Especially because with everything else that's going on in the Church, as uh, Cardinal McCarrick would tell you, uh, you might think he'd have interests lying elsewhere, as many of his uh, close cronies are facing financial charges, uh, morals charges, as the German Synod is trying to pull Germany into the uh, outer stratosphere. You would think His Holiness would have other things on his mind. Why go after a relatively quiet and certainly productive element of the church, especially in the wake of COVID, when the church is still reeling from the closure of most of the churches, and the fact that for a lot of people, being told that all they need is a perfect act of contrition and spiritual communion, and they're good to hook, that's the lesson they've taken away from COVID. So why bother go back to church? especially when it's cheaper not to. This is the situation in which he drops this bomb on us. Why would he do that? Well, I don't know. He and I don't hang out much anymore. Not that we ever did. But I hazard a guess, which may or may not be true. The legal stand, uh, stand, uh, standing of the Tridentine Mass, I'm quite willing to debate. This, what I'm about to offer, I'm not willing to debate because I could very well be wrong. But my best guess is that he is of the generation of clerics that did not initiate the post-Vatican II changes, but carried them out. And they ran roughshod over everybody. They were brutal and cruel and mean. And I know because I lived under them. Every parish seemingly had a Vatican II priest whose job was to rip out altars and altar rails and statues and sometimes rip the rosary apart in the, uh, in the pulpit, banish uh, Eucharistic uh, adoration and benediction, basically screw everything up as, and reform it in their own image. But again, they weren't the people who initiated it, who were much smarter than they were. They were simply the hatchet men. That generation of priests is now the leadership of the church. And many of them felt that the John Paul and Benedict years stopped them from completely remaking the church and the image they wanted to do it in. Since Francis became Pope, they have had the idea that they could finish the job. Now, you remember, Benedict spoke of a hermeneutic of rupture and a hermeneutic of continuity. And if you read his writings on the address to the Curia of December 2005, where he introduces the idea you get the feeling from the way he wrote it that the hermeneutic of continuity was the way things were in most places, and the hermeneutic of rupture was just a theory among strange theologians. Well, of course, in reality, in the world where people lived, the reverse was true. He attempted again to put a fig leaf over the whole thing. Now, uh, what appears to me to be the case is that as long as Francis thought he was going to outlive Benedict, he was willing to let things lie until Benedict died. 
But I think it's entirely possible that having gone uh, through his most recent uh, surgery, he had uh, whatever the reverse of a come to Jesus movement is and uh, decided that he's not around much longer. He can't trust anybody to complete the transition into whatever it is he wants to transit into. And so it was time to strike regardless of the consequences. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Now, um, I can't say that I'm surprised because I grew up with his generation of clerics and they were always like this. They got a little better with that old supervision in the last two pontificates, but now they've reverted to type now that they're in charge. Nasty and cruel, and in a certain sense, stupid. But it doesn't bother, they don't care, they do what they do. Now, he has now revealed himself to be the epitome of the hermeneutic of rupture that Benedict XVI talked about. And where, in a sense, Benedict was trying to give he and his a way out. He surely doesn't want it. Now, what does that mean about the future? Well, you got to remember that every drama, dramatic period in church history is unique. At the time of the, of the Arian heresy, all but five bishops denied the divinity of Christ. And there were thousands of bishops then. Well, that had never happened before. And thank God it hasn't happened since. Until the Great Schism, we'd never had three popes at once. And we haven't had them since. Until Julius III, we never had the spectacle of a diocese being handed over to a heretic by a pope who was himself living with a sort of harem of lads. Um, never had it before and haven't had it since. With any luck, we never will again. We'll have some other nonsense. Unless, of course, these are the last times. I'm not an apocalypticist at all. But ever since Christ came, uh, not unlike the conquest, the shadow of the conquest hanging over the French Canadians, the shadow of the apocalypse sought to hang over us all. And there is another thing to be drawn from this. If anything, seeing the Pope melt down like that, we should remember that we ourselves can do the same thing in our far humbler circumstances. If anything, it should be a call to us for repentance, for redoubling our prayer, redoubling our, our attendance at the sacraments. Uh, in the immortal words of Chaucer, speaking of the clergy of his time, if gold should rust, what can poor iron do? And we ourselves are that poor iron, so we've got to make sure we don't rust. The other, the last point I'd like to make in this area is that very many bishops across the globe, I mean, some of them are showing themselves to be vicious snakes, which, you know, I accept. You, you, you've got to accept people for who they are and not try to make them into what you want them to be. You know, you may want them to be decent people, but that's not your call. You know, you may not want me to, if you have me over for a dinner party, you may not want me to bite the people around me. And I probably shouldn't, but I mean, that's my nature, you know, and that be the case, maybe you shouldn't invite me to a dinner party, but don't expect me to conform to your standards. You know, uh, if I'm a disgusting pig, that's just what I am. And, you know, you have to accept that. All right. So similarly, uh, while some bishops are showing themselves that way, a lot of them are showing themselves either 
true fathers of their flock, lovers of the faith, or at the very least, prudent. Because honestly, especially in dioceses where that are still recovering from the COVID monster, this is the last thing these guys need. And it's in a number of dioceses where the traditional-minded people are the financial and uh, physical mainstays of the of the diocese, smack them around, bite the hand that feeds you, really. So I mean, there, there are any number of reasons why, but a lot of bishops are stepping forward and showing themselves to be true friends of the faith in this in this terrible time. There is one last particularly American note I want to add. And that is, if you can remember back to when our president was elected, I'm sure he can't, but if you can. Uh, well, it was a long time ago. It was, what, uh, six, seven months ago. So, you know, it, it's it's very difficult for the poor man. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for him, you know. Me too. He's our answer to president. Yeah. If he was oh, my yeah, Uncle Joe, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be letting him do what he's doing right now. I'll tell you, he doesn't have a lot of family oh, that no. really care about him. That's just my, that's just my, a, a, a Canadian's observation of it. But anyways, go ahead, Charles. It, it was tough on President Hindenburg, and 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 I understand. You know, it, it's difficult when you're in power and and you're kind of gaga. But at any rate, uh, if you do remember back then, uh, which also shows you're not president, then uh, you'll recall that initially the American bishops drafted a letter of uh, welcome to his new government job. Uh, which, however, apart from, you know, congratulating his entrance to the civil service, also said, and by the way, you're denying several key Catholic truths and you pretend to be Catholic and stuff. Well, the Holy Father rose in righteous wrath and said, no, 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 you can't send him that, I'll send him one. And he did, saying, welcome to government employment, you're great, you're wonderful, you deserve everything you get. But then our bishops issued it anyway. At which Cardinal Seepich of Chicago uh, sent out a Twitter, a twit, a tweet, declaring that um, it was wrong uh, and that, uh, you know, he, he would be willing to help the bishops recover themselves. Not a single other bishop stood, stood by him. And then shortly after that, we heard from uh, the Pope that he was going to pull him back to Rome to ruin some other segment of uh, church administration. Well, I can't help but wonder if the dissonance between Rome and the American hierarchy that was revealed then is not subsuming this issue as well. So I, I don't know. I can't say, but it, it seems a possibility. Now you want words of encouragement. Well, you're going to get them. I made an interesting discovery not two months ago. Now, as you know, on my dad's side, I'm French Canadian. Did I mention that? Have I have I said that? I don't yeah, know. No, absolutely. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and that's uh, it's a great ah. connection that you have with uh, with our, uh, our our country here, Charles. So it's awesome. Well, it is, but I'm I'm afraid I have to confess that I'm not pure. Apart from strains of Indian and Irish, I also have some Scots blood. And therein lies the tale of encouragement I want to tell you. Um, 
I had always known that our Scots ancestor who came to Canada was a fellow called Lachlan McKinnon, who came from a place called the Island of Egg, south of the Isle of Skye, with his wife, Catherine MacDonald. And they arrived at PEI aboard the Brig Alexander in 1772, which is sort of the, the Mayflower for Scots Canadians. It was the first large shipment of Scots to, to, come, to, the, uh, to come to the Dominion. Well, I had known that his two brothers had died at Culloden. And since I knew, or thought I knew, that he was born in 1738, uh, that he was five at the time of the battle and hadn't served in it himself. This was what I thought I knew. Two months ago, I found his obituary in 1830 in the Montreal Gazette. He was not born in 1738. He was born in, 17, uh, he was born in 1723. He died at the age of 107, and he was a veteran of Culloden himself. Now, what did that mean? Well, it meant several things. Firstly, it means that he fought for the king during the Jacobite Risings. He came to Canada in 1772 and saw the American and French revolutions and died at the age of 107 in the year that King Charles X was overthrown. Think of that span of history and everything the church and the world went through in those terrible, terrible times. And yet, his descendants, at least in uh, my particular example, and that of my brother and nieces and nephews, still have the same faith he had and still believe in the same things that he did. Because you see, although he was beaten at Culloden, and although the king's cause was beaten in 1783, and despite everything else that happened, he lost, but he won. Not the victory he was looking for, but he won. And to the degree that we all hold on to the faith, through thick and thin the way our fathers did, it makes their struggles worth it in an earthly sense. I mean, quite apart from the fact that they may have gone to heaven because of what they did, which pleased God. Their earthly struggles, if we hold on to the faith, were not in vain. And whether or not we actually win in what we set out to do, if we stay loyal and we stay faithful, then future generations will be able to look back at us the way we can look back at those who came before us. Your ancestors in Czechia, um, same, same, same. Uh, the, the First Nations, I'll tell you, the, what the Iroquois put the Yoram through, Kateri Tekakwitha, nothing is the way it was, and yet nothing has changed. So be of good cheer. I mean, we've had popes who betrayed the faithful before, and if these aren't the last days, we, the world goes on long enough, I'm sure we'll have them again. And we'll have popes who are saints, and we'll have great rulers, and we'll have evil ones. And we'll have good times, and we'll have bad. And we'll have pandemics and famine, and we'll have great times and joy and, and uh, holidays and Christmas and Easter. And so it will go until the end of time. 
and for each of us, if we keep our, our souls together, then when we go to heaven, if we go, all of this will be a bad dream. Yep, that's great. I, that's a great way to to wrap it up. I think Charles. Uh, I guess we, you know, we just got to keep praying for our leaders. We, we still gotta, we got to pray for our pope, and our bishops, and uh, most importantly, we've got to focus on living a sacramental life going to confession often, receiving the Eucharist worthily and, and growing in our our own personal faith so that we can be like the saints before us, but like our forefathers to give that legacy of faith to others and then to generations after us. So Charles, I hope that we can do this in person someday. I hope that you can come on again, even if it's virtually sometime soon. Uh, so happy that you joined us again, Charles. Thank you. I'll be happy to do it. I, I would just say, don't forget also to pray for your civil leaders. Uh, for Justine, for uh, even for the for Legault, pray for the lieutenant governors and the uh, and the governor general, and the queen herself, that they be what they ought to be, and that they do their duty by their peoples and by God, who, uh, for better or worse, delivered us over to them. Yeah, absolutely, no no question about that for sure. Our civil leaders need that, and you know the devil, uh, he's he's going to go after. Anybody that he can, whether that's uh, in the church or in the government, uh, he goes after the the vast right or the ones that can influence the most, at least, right? So, well, uh, and Justine, Justine himself has tons of devout Catholic ancestors. Uh, the fact that he is a a worthless scion of a better stock is beside the point. Uh, yeah. Uh, the one I'm really sorry for, of course, is his cousin Gary, who does Doonesbury. But never mind. No, that's uh, no, that's great, Coach Charles. Thanks again for for your time. Thanks for uh, yeah coming to and joining us up here in Canada for uh, for a little uh, history lesson as usual. And your insights are outstanding. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll welcome you back anytime you you have the time. So thank you very much. Thanks so much. God bless you. And thank you for having me. A big thank you again to Charles Coulomb for joining us again here on the Catholic Connect podcast. And you can check out his work at Crisis Magazine, also his podcast called Off the Menu over at Tumblr House. And uh, check out the YouTube channel as well. So much great content from Charles. And of course, he's got a ton of great books out. And we'll make sure we include some of those in the show notes. So thanks again to Charles for really rallying the troops and bringing more truth to the light. We need to bring truth to the light in this day and age. So uh, again, just such a blessing to have Charles and look forward to catching up with him again in the near future. And thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. Please like and subscribe and share as you see fit. We're on Facebook, Twitter. Please drop me a line anytime. And uh, Catholics, you know the drill. You know what you got to do in order to be this light, this beacon, to be an example of love and truth, the love and truth that is Jesus Christ in this world got to be living in a state of grace you got to be going to confession at least three times every year every advent every lent anytime you're in a state of mortal sin don't even spend a second of your life there thanks for listening to the podcast everyone god bless we'll chat with you very soon